I, well, I, yeah, I don't even really need this today. Um, uh, okay, I'm okay. Sorry. I really miss you guys. It was fun. It was a, it was a weird week, but I kind of, like, I, I worked a lot on my book, but I still thought a lot about you. I reread my, not reread, I got my evaluations for the, for the course for um, Canadian American culture that I, I did last semester. Uh, it's, the, the entire course is shifting <laughs> midterm in my mind because I'm more and more convinced that I'm going to be the teacher for, three, for uh, all three classes since uh, I spoke. I had a, a meeting with my thesis director and he spent a lot of time in the department and he had no idea what was going on with the English as a second language. Like this entire operation that you guys are running, they, he had no idea how it went on. So uh, that made me realize that no one really knows what's going on and that's why I, I keep being catapulted in these spaces is that I'm closer to everyone else that in understanding what is, uh, what is going on with the lit classes. In reading the evaluations, one of the things that came up is the idea that this class is actually, this class could take three directions. And I just want to make absolute, like, this is the first time I'm giving this class. I'm, I'm making it up along. I'm reorganizing ideas, thinking, okay, maybe this is better and stuff, but it's obviously going to be a lot cleaner once I've given this class twice. So I'm sorry, you're kind of my test sample. We're all lab rats together, which is great for like creative and uh, originality purposes, but in like holding on to the class, it might not be, like I, I have no idea, it might, I might fail on the second time and this time might be great, I don't know. But one of the things that I, I was thinking about is how there are three classes, how I, I abandoned the idea of giving, your, of giving you a lit class because the, um, when you're teaching literature, you're not teaching a book, you're teaching the structure within it. And not everyone is at that same level here. Or I'm basing myself a lot on evaluations that I've, well, like, not evaluations, like the feeling that I had when I was teaching in the last semester for the third year is I'm not gonna speak of narratology, I'm not gonna speak of, you know, structure uh, cadrante and things of the sort because that's not really what you're here for. I'm not as you are, and that's why I keep throwing a lot of these, uh, a lot of, this, of the pedago pedagogical ideas at you, is that I'm not formed in that either. I don't know how to teach. I'm trying, but I don't, I'm not, uh, I have not spent as many hours thinking about it as you have. So I have both of these types of classes that I can't do well now, that I will eventually be able to do well although I, I do not believe I'm ever going to make this class a lit class. I always believe, and, and since I'm not a teacher of teachers, I'm probably not going to be taking that mantle either because you have specialities in that and you could and will be teaching a lot more of that at me than I will be teaching to you. But in the end, what the only offer that I have with this class is, is a general culture class. And I, I've developed a comfort in that perspective of saying how I built this class is saying that I don't want you leaving a survey of English literature class without 
hearing certain names, without hearing certain texts. I don't know if I've said this out loud. I know I've spoken about this with some of the students, but that's the basis of the class. Like the class philosophy right now is me going, let's take this historical time or let's take these social aspects or let's take these characters in literature and make sure that you at least know them. Because when you're going to go off in teaching, you have to have at least a hazy idea or at least like one or two titles that come, come into mind. That's why I've chosen the third option of not making it a, a lit studies class because that's complex. And it also presupposes um, reading. It presupposes that you know your classics and we can deconstruct them and we can think of how they are thought of. Most of the time when you're doing lit classes, we're also thinking about people who want to create, who want to write. Is this the case in this class? Does anyone want to write a book in their life? At some point. At some point. Okay. Pop-up books. <laughs> books are great. Okay, but that's, that's the thing. In lit classes, there are a lot of people who are sharing the idea of understanding how literature works to be able to write their own story. Just want to make sure that was out of the picture. The second one is how to frame certain texts in classes. If, this is the big if, of the last two weeks of me thinking about it, if I ever end up giving young adults literature, which is the next one, that's what I'm going to be doing a lot more. I will be focusing on taking these texts, since you're not going to be, everyone here is aiming for secondary grade teaching. Is that it, or am I wrong? No, we're, we're wrong. Okay, so. Yeah. Okay. But I'm not getting to Sejep. Okay, that, that's. You might later, not everyone here. Okay, okay, that's, that gives me like a good idea of, like in the last two weeks I was questioning my own decisions about the class and going, okay, does this make sense? Do I need to change this? Do I need to apply this? In the next young adult, in, in young adult, there will be a lot more reading because young adult fiction is a lot quicker, is a lot, bref, uh, uh, it's a lot uh, shorter. There you go. First year hasn't done it, second year has done it. Second year, you've done it with whom? Francois, okay, so that, I, I don't know this. This is how strange it is. I, and I don't even know who I can ask that question to. What books were you reading? Um, Marrow Thieves. Marrow Thieves? Huh? Okay. Boo? That's the kid. The ghost kid, yeah. 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 Okay, well, Marrow Thieves. Shahid Zmelin. Thompson Highway. Okay. I read like Miss Marvel and then Deep as Vendetta. Oh, what? <laughs> For young adults? <laughs> Basically, we read books and then we actually read this. Okay, but V for Vendetta is considered young adult fiction. Not the book. Not the book. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm once again asking you. I have no idea. I. Motherless Brooklyn? Motherless Brooklyn? Or 
Okay, once again, if it's motherless Brooklyn, I don't really see young adult there. But okay, uh, so that's basically what's going, like if we're going to be following each other, like I'm speaking for first year, if we're going to be doing this and then second year young adult, I'm going to be building more on independent reading and uh, Canadian American culture is bigger books. It's basically no books for this class, more books in the second class, but shorter. And in the third class, it'll be longer books, but less books. That's how I started. I've been catapulted in this very strangely. Um, so that's that. And uh, yeah, what I've been teaching is, is not a, as I was saying in the first course, I'm not teaching you the unique way of entering a text. I'm teaching you my way of entering the text, which is one way of entering the text. If you're going to be teaching them, you're going to have to read them. And if you read them, you're, you might see my way of seeing them, but you will surely see yours. And you really need to emphasize on your reading. You need to find a, a place to insert yourself into that story and to be able to speak of yourself of that story. So that's why it's very, like, those texts that Francois has chosen, I, like, I really like Marothieves, so that's great. But Boo was okay. Boo wasn't amazing. Uh, I don't really like Fault in Our Stars, but that's just... The movie was cute. <laughs> I would have done um, uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower oh. if we were doing Nick Hornby. That would have been it. Yeah. But that's, you know, m me. Uh, Nimona? And drama. Drama, okay. Okay, uh, we'll speak about this later on because like, there are some of those books that I've never heard of. Uh, okay, so that's for that. How was your uh, break? It was okay, how was the work, the midterm? Was that a, not too complicated or did you rack your brain? It was okay? Thank you for the suggestions and uh, for reading stuff that were sent over. Michael, we'll try that out. Yes, sir. I, I took a bet. Maybe I should have written to you before, but uh, I've developed my three theses. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the thing is, I, I, I was worried that with an outline as uh, concise as what was given, mm -hmm. yeah. that you wouldn't get a really good idea of what, where I was trying to go. Your instincts are very so good. I, I, I gave a whole lot more meat my text is not complete, but uh, there's much more than what was in the example outline, just because I really wanted you to be able to get a sense of what I'm getting at. I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. No, it's... Um, but it's more than a page and a half. Yeah. Even though I'm... It's bullet points, so it's... That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I've, what I've, uh, I've also like, thought a lot about what I've been doing in class, of... Um, I haven't given you enough space because in keeping the class to me, like in writing the entire class and saying in three hours this is what we're gonna do, it gives me a lot of control considering that I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here yet. Uh, so I have to, st I will start giving a little bit m more space. One of the things that I've, it worked for like half of the, it worked for more than half of the class last semester, but I tend to not as I've already said, I'm really bad at evaluations. I feel like evaluations will be the last thing that I, I get correctly when I'm putting on a class. So obviously not good for this one, but I tried to make it, no, no, but they're not, they're okay, but they're not great. But I tried to like alleviate it on your side. So it's 
they're not great, but at least you're not burdened with immense work. On the other hand, what I also realized is that, yeah, there, there needs to be more conversation, but that's something I need to work on myself. Like I really need to, to uh, let in some improvisation, need to let in some possibilities of losing 45 minutes in certain points and just us discussing about it. I need to get there. Uh, that's also the thing with, oh yeah, the original point that I had in, in last class is I had people in that class who told me that I did not give enough details. And my philosophy towards that was the idea that if I give too much details, I'm just going to get parroting. I'm just going to get people giving me exactly what I ask. And that's not great for a teacher, and it's not great for a class. I like to give very ample, like, go and enjoy yourself, especially, like, now, because in the first time I'm going to give a class for the first year, I'm not going to fail anyone. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to fail anyone that purposefully, like, at least you purposefully go against what I'm saying. That won't really be the case, so I'm, in my regards, it's a lot freer to just say, enjoy yourselves, expand, stretch, try stuff, and we'll work together afterwards. The opposite side would be like, do this, and I'm not comfortable in, in that yet. Yeah, sorry, in the back. That's the thing. I don't want you to aim for something. I want you to speak of yourself. But I understand there is a complexity there. So yes. Okay. What? What's your book? Just for me to heads up on it. Uh, okay. Okay. That's the thing. That's great. Like you, you keep saying the word wanted, and I didn't want anything. I just wanted, like, it's you. You should be offering me something. It's not. I'm, I, I'm, that's why I don't ask as much. It's just like I plowed through the Watership Down one because it's my favorite book. I just went like, okay, let's go. What can I? It's like I really. What I would want to have is an idea of who you are, an idea of how you're so. So that's why, like, I really have to be on that line of loose and instructive. But if you get too instructive, people end up parroting you. And that's just, it's a bore. And it's a shame because, especially for you, like, since you're going to be developing a, a personality to do what I'm doing, it, it needs to expand. You need to, don't be shy, don't be, uh, don't censor yourself. You know, it really needs to be something that you're, you, you feel loose and free to do. Yes, sorry. Yes. I know something. Is it because you're afraid of failing? Yeah. Um, I'm mentally ill. No, no. <laughs> No, but if it is about failing, like, this is the time you should be failing. I am not allowed to fail. 
you are absolutely allowed to fail. You're not allowed to fail in the regards that you're going to be saying that's something entirely opposite to the text. You have to be true to the text. You don't have to be true to me. So you can't fail if you're true to the text. If, if what you say about the text that you've read is coherent, if you're saying, um, uh, I'll say something outrageous. Like if you're saying Harry Potter is not the chosen one. Sorry, that's the last example I had. Well, you're going to have to prove it in the text. If you find elements in the text that, that prove that point, then you're fine. But if you're trying to tell that to me, I don't care if he's the chosen one or not. You have to, what you owe is to the book. So I'm not going to fail anyone on trying something. I'm going to fail people on not being coherent with the, with the story. So you, like, I understand panic attacks, but this is... <sighs> Trust yourself, please. Like, no, but I, I, I try to wear my heart on my sleeve in the fact that, like, that the panic attacks, the imposter syndrome, the, everything that you probably baggaged through that, I'm living it currently, right now. So, and, and you're going to be taking my space eventually. Fail now. I failed during my BA. I failed. I failed. I, I actually failed a, a class on Virginia Woolf. I failed it. I had a D. It was uh, E. Sorry. It, like I've done it, and I'm super glad now. I'm very proud. And the teacher that failed me is a colleague. <laughs> 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 but like I, I, I firmly like this is more of a human thing here. I firmly believe that we learn a lot in our failures. So you might not fail as in getting a C or a D or, d but you need to try something that you go, oh well, well that didn't work after all. You really need to do this. You really need to learn how to do this. I might not be the one who teaches you, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Yes? How will you differentiate uh, an A from an E from a T? Like, what, how do you correct? Quality of arguments, okay. most of the time. Quality of arguments, quality of, of writing, even though in point form it's not. Uh, quality of sources, but I, in quality of sources, like if you're doing, who sent me this? Someone was doing something on, I uh, can't remember. The last email I got on sources was there was one academic source, but two that weren't, that were informal. That was you. What was the text again? Divergent. Yeah, exactly. That was a really good example. In, in the Divergent series, it's, it's, a, it's a text that allows to have half and half because Divergent is a, I won't say it's, well, it is a canonical text. It's a very studied text. So it has had an intrusion in university, but I do not believe, being a pop culture scholar myself, that university has completed the analysis of that text, so you need to go back to the fans. So that's why I was like, that's great. You have one academic source that shows that you did the research, and then you have two or three that are blogs because that's where ideas are discussed. Or we, um, Earlier on, someone asked me if, if Reddit was usable. Reddit is usable for very modern texts because that's where there's the reactive thing. It takes five to 10 years for the university to start producing texts on objects that are, are super modern. So like that was also something, if you're, if, if you're doing Great Gatsby and you're only using blogs, you kind of failed there because there's a lot of, like it's been 
institutionalized and stuff of the sort. So those are my evaluation points. But since we're considering uh, an evaluation that's only for 15%, there's not a huge gap in between them. Like the, me starting to think of A minus to B plus doesn't really translate to a lot of uh, pointage in the end. I'm just because I want to do this. Before? OK, there you go. After you. How strict can I be? I I've been know. saying I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I can't, like I... No, but we have other teachers that are kind of like, we're going to do like whatever, and then we all get like bad grades because we didn't yeah. know what they asked, but it didn't ask for anything. Yeah, I heard about her. <laughs> I, I know, like I, I heard about that teacher last semester, and it's incomprehensible. Yeah. Like I don't understand what happened. <laughs> That's the thing. Is, but it's not, I'm not going to be playing clown and going like, oh, this is great, you're funny, yeah, you fail. That, that would be, like, it, it would be really, it would be a horrible thing to do. I really want you to, to believe me when I say go, go crazy. Because I, like my best work that I've done during my university career has been just go nuts. Okay, I'll, I'll talk about this. I did, uh, maybe I'll speak about it in two weeks, but I did, uh, um, I, I did a tarot reading of a 70s science fiction book where the Yi King regulated the world within the book. So it was an oral presentation where I had to explain, like the, one of the characters in the book uses the Yi King. And in the story, the world doesn't function correctly. But every time he pulls out something of the Yi King, every time he uses the branches in the Yi King, it's, it's not... Um, Speaking of the broken reality of the book, it's speaking of how to bring back the broken reality to our reality. And like everyone in class went, what the hell is, like I really looked on drugs, but that's one of the best. I was so happy to just go in, talk about anything and having, once again, that teacher that is now a colleague, uh, <laughs> just going like, oh shit, you know, and not, it was just two, three points. I didn't feel like I, I didn't completely flesh it out, but it, it felt really good. I did a, that's why I opened it up on, on video games. I did a thing on Discordianism and Assassin's Creed, on how Assassin's Creed uses um, old uh, archetypes of Calisti um, and Eris uh, and the, the golden apple of, Discordian, of Discordianism. And that also like flew over the head of everyone that read it, but I was super, super proud of doing it. I'd like, I'd like that. Like it might be 10% of the class that gets to that point, but that would be great of having just People going, I, I tried that. Not super convinced, but at least I tried it out and the teacher was like in it. That sounds super smart. Yeah. It does because as it, it sounds amazingly smart. In the academic, like when we were speaking of, of divergent, you might not have anything in academia that speaks of divergent in the point that you want to bring it. But it's obvious that your book comes from a tradition and it's obvious that it comes from literary artifices or tools or stuff that have been institu institutionalized because everything that you can do in a book has kind of been done so no, that's, that's a really good reflex of saying, well, 
this 2019 book probably didn't invent anything. Let's see where they got their ideas. I'm all for it. Like, really, don't, don't feel me um, mesquin or I, I just really, I, I, I'm building a class. I need to, and a lot of these books I haven't read in 10 years, so I'm going back to them going, uh, do, are they still valid? Are they still interesting? Are they still, like, I, I, this class originally was a lot more around the, uh, around the presence of jazz in literature, but that works a lot more later on in uh, the Harlem Renaissance. So there's not a lot of jazz except that we're speaking of the 1920s today. Everything is moving constantly, and in the last two weeks, I really had to sit down and think of what the hell I was doing as a teacher in front of teachers. Yes, sir. Kind of. I, I'm, kind, yeah. Because uh, I know <laughs> it would be best to wait for feedback before trying to, uh, to, to, to go further into uh, making this outline into a full text. But uh -huh. uh, I was wondering if we could, if oh. it, was, it was possible to schedule a Zoom call or something. No, 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 sorry. But my my kind of is, is strange is because I, I have three jobs here. So I'm always at my office, but like just 10 minutes, like 10 minutes before starting class, I was dealing with droit de propriété, droit de représentation, droit de reproduction mécanique with a student that just finished his uh, final film documentary. So I'm always at G3260, well, always more or less, but uh, it's just like you'll get me in between weird things of having to deal with, uh, like for the next month and a half, every Wednesday I'm doing le téléjournal pour, uh, pour le, le bac en télévision. So it's like, I'm always here, but that's why I maybe not have presaged this, but you might have seen me running around university. It's because I'm not just like a, a chargé de cours that comes in and gives his class. I'm also... Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always here. Okay. Basically, I'm always here. But it's just what I'm doing while I'm here is... Oof. <laughs> Complex. Okay. Um, uh, 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 I, Mary, Mary, I wish you all a good March 8th. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Mary doesn't really work. Uh, ironically, one of the least feminine um, classes that I have. <laughs> it's just how it, it's least, not absent. We've spoken about Dorothy Parker. I'm not really going to, to explain who Dorothy Parker is during this class, but what you need to know is that Dorothy Parker is, was one of the rare writers of her time to be exposed in that manner. So we're going to be speaking of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. Dorothy Parker was there, uh, but she sadly, and in the same, uh, probably in the same vein of what happened to Zelda Fitzgerald also, authors that did not have the support of being these larger than life characters than their male counterparts. But for me, it was kind of important. Like, I remember trying to think of a short story to put to the syllabus and just it hitting me of saying like, although Hemingway wrote amazing short stories, well, maybe Dorothy Parker's like someone you need to discover and she's pretty amazing. Uh, also a very kooky character. Uh, as far as question goes, is everything okay? Thank you very much for hearing me just blurt out that I I need to think about what I'm doing, and that's one of the things that I do do correctly. While I'm acting, I do not think. 
I need to stop acting to think to be able to reflect on what was going on. So if there was like um, the mauvais plis that we're taking in the first part of this semester, this is kind of the moment to tell me like we need to work more on this because I'm kind of fresh and back and I'll be able to take these into, into consideration. I also have the, uh, the evaluation, uh, not on the evaluation. <laughs> All right. Uh, there are things, I, I've started also considering the possibility that I will be teaching all three classes. I already started thinking of what I'm not going to be teaching twice or thrice. Of If you're going to have me in three classes, I'm trying and I'm going to make sure that you don't have overlapping, oh, we've seen this two years ago. So I'm getting into that, but for this, part, I kind of have to explain like very quickly like how the United States were created. This we're going to be looking a lot more at in uh, American and Canadian culture because I have one of the classes that is the history of the composition of the US and the composition of, the, uh, of Canada so that you understand what the, basis are, the basics are. Uh, what I like to say about, is that someone's phone? That's your phone? Okay, great. Just in case someone lost their phone. <laughs> yes, sir. I don't, I, I, I need to give your, like, a little pause. And just, da, 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 phone? <laughs> I really, really. Uh, I like to frame it this way, and I will be framing it in, in a couple of years if we ever do this class together, is that the United States were, were uh, created, and in the initiation of the idea of the U.S. was made by artists. And they were made by artists, well, not artists in their function, because they were all politicians and economists and stuff, but the, the writing of the Declaration of Independence is done in such artistry, it's, it's the most beautifully written text of the United States. Although I might, it, it's not fiction, but it's the most beautiful text in the history of the United States. It's so well written, and it's so intricate and understanding in what it's saying, what it can say, and what it will say that it's measured word per word in such a sensibility. I don't know if how it's taught in the States. No one has, um, has and never. In my opinion, it's like sanctified. Yeah. Thank you. That's, thank you very much. As a political, yeah, as a. You also just have parliament and then the Senate that sits there. But in the United States, you have two bodies that must both pass, but then when you pass the president, it's It is, it is. As a political artifact, it's massively complex. But just as a piece of work, it's beautiful. And it's, it was written in complete diplomacy. It was written in an, in, um, it's basically, what, eight or eight or 11? How many wrote it? Eight or 11? I, I'm, I can't remember exactly. Sorry. It's. Can you look at the last page? They all Yeah, but I, I don't have last <laughs> And it's, it's during uh, 63 days, eight or 11 people writing a text going, I don't agree with this. We need to change this. Maybe if we thought about this. And it's, it becomes 
such a perfect piece of writing. Like there's, it's writing, although I, it's not fiction, it's just people understanding and laying the groundwork for a country through writing. So for me, it's, it's something very, very powerful because you're taking the act of writing, the act of being clear in the disposition of your ideas, of understanding what your ideas can lead to, and everyone, partisanships, uh, of all partisanships, arguing and getting to a common understanding of what they've, they're writing to make sure that the next 50, 100, 200, 300 years will be okay. That's something pretty powerful. And when the Declaration of Independence was written, it did not, like that's also, I'm, I'm not gonna do the entire history, but it, it didn't, it created the United States, but it wasn't like adopted and it worked well and everything went, you know. It, there was a lot of danger in publishing this text. There was, there was a lot of, um, it did not clear all problems and it even kind of prepared or it, it helped out with certain problems that would emerge and it created other problems that would emerge. But those problems that have emerged are problems of, di of dialectics, of people thinking in a certain manner and that is also something that keeps the country um, in argument, like it, it, it keeps them alive in a certain sense. Although right now in this political climate, it might be complicated of, say, of seeing that division as something positive, but since, since the beginning, they've been thinking of these arguments, it keeps them on their toes about ideologies and stuff of the sort. Yes, sorry. Five? No, 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 there were more than that. No, there were five. There were just five people? Okay, I need to go back to those notes. Oh, with the Constitution, you're right, absolutely. Okay, yeah, sorry, I mixed it up with the Constitution. But the Declaration of Independence is, apart from the numbers, I've, I've, everything I wanted to say is said. We'll do that later on in a couple of years. What I wanted to make sure is that the, um, there's, One of the lines that's going to be going through in all the texts that we're going to be uh, reading today is the American dream. And the understanding of what the American dream means comes from a 1931, 1931 book called The Epic of America by James Thurslow Adams that in the 1930s was the first time where we started thinking of the, like the American dream was something that was present in the American minds before that, but the Naming something gives it a form of importance. The American dream comes from that, from this book. And the American dream has been, um, has been accepted, has been encouraged, has been criticized, and has been fled in many ways. In literature in the United States, we're constantly either saying that it exists, saying that it doesn't exist, saying that it exists but that's a problem or saying that it doesn't exist and that's also a problem. So it's, it becomes a, I won't say like a symbol, I really like using the idea of a figure because a figure is something that you, you add a form of investment, emotional or psychological or, or, or knowledge investment. It's, a, it's something that is used 
to bounce off an idea off. So when you say the American dream, you can be thinking of uh, it's, it, what it did or what it failed to do. And that's why there's something important in knowing that figure. Like, I, I'm not surprising anyone with the American dream. You all have heard that at a certain point. Okay, great. Like, currently the American dream resides immensely in sports and rap music. Like, that's where we find most of, no, but it's not even, it's the idea of the American dream is to be able to, um, to go further than what your class offers you or what your opportunities offer you. And that's professional sports and rap music more than anything else is the idea that people will kill themselves on football fields to be able to sign with the NFL and then become millionaires and stuff of the sort. Goes in the same way for the, uh, for the MLB. People in Puerto Rico trying to be the best baseball players to feed and, and, uh, and take care of their entire family. Yes. Do you believe that if you work hard, you can do whatever you want, or are you aware that there is injustice in a system that prevents that from happening? Yeah, and some people work really hard but do not get to that yet. Exactly. And there are, the same book can do both, can bring it down or can alleviate it or exploit it or uh, ennoble it like great American like exactly like what they call the great American novel does a lot with the American dream does a lot with the declaration of independence does a lot about the basics on which the United States were built on I just want to make sure that was covered uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. starting off with Mark Twain Mark Twain is a little bit outside of uh, what I wanted to speak about today but the fact of the matter is everyone keeps saying, like Hemingway said that all American literature comes from Huckleberry Finn, so it comes from one of Mark Twain's story, stories. Um, William Faulkner, that we won't have the time to speak of today, but there's a good reason for that. William Faulkner is very much of the literature class. If we're going to be speaking of William Faulkner, it's something that everyone needs to have read because we need to have like a conversation about it because it's very dense, very complex, and it becomes the type of text that people like to discuss, not in their social, political, or cultural importance, but in, oh my God, look at what he did right there. So Faulkner also, like Faulkner is a, a very uh, great admir um, admirer of Mark Twain. He said that Mark Twain is everyone's, every author's grandfather. Mark Twain wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and also The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That you probably know, even though you don't know that you know that book. It's a book that is very in the public understanding. When we, especially when we speak of the United States, there's something fundamental about Huck Finn. More Huck Finn than Tom, than Tom Sawyer. Uh, Huck Finn is especially a book, well, it's, it's an adventure book for young boys or girls, but it's been aimed a lot towards uh, young boys in the, in the last years, in the last years since its inception, actually. And it's the, um, it's the adventures of a runaway slave and a young boy that 
uh, has discovered treasure in, in Tom Sawyer, he discovers treasure and now he has money, but now uh, since he has money, he wants to run away because his father is a drunk and they go on down the Mississippi River on a raft and they have adventures. Uh, Mark Twain is, he came in in a very interesting period because he comes from the idea of naturalism. He comes from the idea of, of writing through the realist pr prism, so realism and naturalism. But it's also, he comes at the end of the 19th century, so we're in a, a point in US history where we're thinking of what we've been doing. Like basically when Huck Finn is published, they're at the same space as where I am in my teaching. We're not halfway there, but we're like, oh wait, what, what have we been speaking of? What have, like the, the United States is getting a lot more stable in what they represent and, and their political scale. They're also becoming a lot more expansive through the territory. So there's the gold rush and there are a lot of events that are expanding the territory of the United States up to the point that we know right now. But there's also a, there's progress, but in that expansion, there's a, a, the opportunity to think of what you've been doing to allow or to encourage this type of progress. So there are two movements that are present in Mark Twain, and they are in between this idea of realism, but also the fact that Mark Twain is considered a satirist, where he will do realism because he's speaking of contemporary United States, but he'll also use certain turns of phrase and situations to demonstrate ideologies or to criticize in a non-overt manner. Like the satire is very smooth, but it's very present. One of the satires that I find is kind of interesting here, but it goes like against what we think as satire in the modern sense, is uh, Toni Morrison, when she speaks of Huckleberry Finn, she says that, in, in speaking of that friendship, pleasant as this relationship is, sufficed as it by a lightness, sorry, sufficed by a, ah, suffused, thank you, as it is by a lightness, they both enjoy and a burden, why did I write this in? <laughs> I read, they both enjoyed and a burden, mm, there's a word there. A burden of responsibility they both assume. It cannot continue. Knowing the relationship is discontinuous, doomed to separation, it or used to be typical of the experience of the white-black childhood friendships, mine included, speaking of Toni Morrison, and the cry of inevitability, of inevitability, rupture. I, I really need to reread these. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> what she says is that there, there's something very, um, encouraging about the idea of having two friends of different races going down the Mississippi River together, but when she was reading it as a child, she knew that it would come to an end and that these types of friendships, relationships, and unions do end up coming to an end and breaking up. So the, the idea of having a satire within Huckleberry Finn when you're reading it is not overt. It's in reading the text that you understand that we're we're bending the rules of realism here. Someone who doesn't understand the United States, since that book was exported to Europe, everyone was very well enchanted by the story. When you go back to the US and you read the story, you're like, eh, that wouldn't really happen that way. So there's something very smart in understanding that you can aspire to a great relationship, but that people will read them with a 
more down-to-earth understanding that this is, this is still fiction, like this would not be allowed right now or would be allowed for a closed amount of time. Mark Twain is also very, uh, you might, if you know of him outside of his works, is that he has um, a very uh, popular way of being recognized. He is of the great adventurous types of the United States. He is probably one of the great first adventurers of the letters, like the, the, the guy who became, he grew up on boats. His name, like actually his real name is uh, Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain is a, is a boating term, is when you're trying to, uh, the Mark Twain I think is the, um, the depth that you need to have for your boat, for your boat to get to land. So his name is not Mark Twain. The, the Mark Twain is the, the mark that you need to hit on the ground when you're trying to bring your boat to land. So that's like all those types of things and obviously uh, a lot uh, others. Like he worked on steamboats. He was a journalist beforehand. He also was a deserter from the Confederate Army. He decided to not fight because he had ideas. Like all these little elements create a larger than life character. And there are of these people in the, uh, in the English literature that are, they end up being bigger than the fiction that they created. I've spoken a lot of Byron. Byron is one of the great examples for the, for the, for the English. Mark Twain is one of the first great examples for the, uh, for the United States. He was very, very well known. He was very well loved. Uh, and he was very popular for his entire career. He was also someone who um, uh, wrote in uh, correspondence. So his novels were also written piece by piece and people could, there was even people who could subscribe as in a very old school substack. They could send money to Mark Twain and Mark Twain would send them chapters. Like this is, substack is not new, basically what I'm saying. <laughs> Patreon wouldn't work in the same way. <laughs> Patreon comes a little bit later. Uh, but, so he dies in 1910, and uh, he leaves a very important um, influence behind him. And then you get the uh, lost generation. So this is what we're going to be speaking of. There are two generations. The lost generation, which spans people that were born in between 1883 and 1900. The lost generation was described in, a, in the most popular manner by Gertrude Stein, who said that the lost generation, it's... It is what they are. It's the generation that grew up or came of age during the First World War. So what Gertrude Stein said about the, the lost generation, and it didn't really work afterwards, is why it's called the lost generation is because of the time of war, they lost all possibility of um, understanding world in a, in a normal way. Wartime was such a destabilizing thing that they were lost without... Um, sorry, I keep, I can't find the, not identity, they don't have a Yeah, it's not repair. Uh, sorry, sometimes. No, it's like you, you, you cannot measure yourself towards something because you're in such a chaotic, points of reference, landmarks, works, but it's, since you don't know what normal is, no anchors, well, yeah, there's, there's no normality in their lives. They were uprooted very young and they, they ended up fighting in a, war, in a war and then the war was 
five years of their life. So then they had to go back to normal. But what's normal when you're going back? Like it, that's why she had uh, Gertrude Stein thought of the lost generation, which was taken up by uh, several authors. We'll be seeing. But the problem with the lost generation is that it worked during those years. Like it worked of calling that generation the lost generation until about 1935. But then Second World War happened in 1939. And the fact that they had, sorry, there's, there's one thing that I didn't preamble in what she was saying about the lost generation, is that Gertrude Stein said, everything complex and hard, you've lived too, too early, and you're not going to have any hardships later on. <laughs> So that's, sorry, I, I didn't, that was the, to complete the quote, is that Gertrude Stein was like, oh, well, since World War I is, was your, your adolescence, you're going to be bored in, in your 50s and 60s. <laughs> exactly, she had no idea. <laughs> up to like 1935, every, like even up to 1929, everyone was like, we're the last generation, and then something happened in 29, and they went, ah, shit, we're going to be living a lot of stuff. Which brings me to, I, this is something that I'm not going to be teaching here, because it's unscientific, but I love framing a class around it. So I use it in uh, Canadian and American culture. It's a book called The Fourth Turning about the cyclicity of generations. I don't know if you remember this, but when the pandemic started, there was a lot of memes about like the, the 20s and how we're starting the 20s and yes. we can't wait to have like flappers and stuff of the sort because... Yeah, but we're gonna have the Great Depression. Exactly. The, the fourth <laughs> turning. There's something in the fourth turning. I say it's unscientific because it's just observation. It's two sociologists that started looking on how um, history is cyclical mm -hmm. and how things constantly come back through very loose but definable archetypes. Like, like the 1820s and 1920s, 2020 pandemics? Exactly. It's not, I can't say that it's science, but it's great when you're framing a class because you're like, look at how these things mirror themselves. And the 1920s mirror themselves amazingly well with the 2020s. So the, the idea of them laughing by saying, well, well you know, we, the war messed it up, but we're going to be okay afterwards, is also like, I think we're doing, there's also that phrase that comes from uh, Marx, I think, first as tragedy, then as farce, where something horrible can happen, and the first time it happens, it's a tragedy. But when the second time it happens, then it becomes kind of laughable because you're like, oh shit, again. <laughs> so like the 20s, you're, like, you're basically spending your young adulthood in the farcical 20s. I'm sorry to say this. People have lived the 1920s, and now we're doing like part two, which is bonkers, and we have no idea what's going on. But what's great with that, and I, I frame American culture through that, the book Fourth Turning, so I'll be speaking a lot more about it later on. I won't be speaking too much about it. I just wanted to, to emphasize the fact that there's a lot of... I feel like the, 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 the decade you are best equipped to understand is the 1920s. Like any book that you'll pick up from the 1920s, you'll understand like this. Because I reread Great Gatsby last semester, and I'm like, oh my God, this is... This is Liz Plank level toxic masculinity. Like I understand this book just going, oh yeah, oh yeah. And I'm really happy that I had started off the class by framing the idea of it's not because Fitzgerald wrote such a precise representation of the problem with men that he is a problematic male. 
he was a problematic male, but <laughs> like we still need to keep this separated. But he was a problematic male in our consideration during those times, he was kind of normal. Um, but if I promise you, like don't watch the um, Baz Luhrmann version, although it's, it's very nice and great. Read the book and tell me like, if you change the setting, this, you just need to add the internet to the book and it's, you, know, <laughs> you know everything that's in this book. It's great. So uh, what Gertrude Stein thought of The Lost Generation, she also thought as, uh, might have lost this one. Oh yeah, in Great Britain, we're almost simultaneously in what they called the Edwardian times. So the Edwardian times is the reign of uh, uh, Edward VII or VI, VII. Uh, I think it was something like in between eight, uh, 18, oh, 1890 to 1900. But this I'm really not sure of, but their dates, so. But the last generation and the Edwardian times kind of synchronized because, oh no, 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 no. The Edwardian were ending at 1910. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From 1901 to 1910, yeah. 1910, yeah. 1910, yeah. I, I, like the, the, those are the two pins that I'm putting in history, but I think they mirror maybe the idea of what is an Xer, what is a Gen Z, what is it? Like generations aren't defined. There are of these types. Like I'm, I'm a millennial technically. I think under certain, I like I'm, I'm turning forty this year. Exactly. So it's there. Are, there's always periods of flatment in between that kind of make no sense. I can't. I can't associate. Like I, 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 I love millennials. They're great. I can't associate with them. Like. They're good. Yeah. I do. I can't. I can't say. You killed the diamond industry. <laughs> Where are we now? How did I look back at my notes and then it became wow? Okay, so I got it. I had written it down in case I had a problem. The lost generation is the disoriented, wandering, directionless generation. Ah, I could have read what I was doing, and I wouldn't have said silly things. So, but also in the uh, uh, and Gertrude Stein was um, uh, living in Paris. What the lost generation speaks a lot about is also uh, Americans that left expatriates. So the lost generation was also very much a term used for young Americans that left and uh, moved mostly uh, in Paris, but a lot in Europe. And ended up starting, uh, ended up writing because they wanted to be these amazing novelists. Ended up meeting Gertrude Stein, and Gertrude Stein was a, a mentor to a lot of them and oriented a lot of the careers. Gertrude Stein was a, in modern parlance, we'd say she was like a proofreader or an editor, but she was also the person who took care of a lot of American authors living in Europe. And she would reread the manuscripts and say like, oh, well this, maybe you take this off. This is a little long, stuff of the sort. So she's massively influential, although she hasn't really 
uh, wrote, she hasn't, she didn't write much. There you go. So we're starting off with the Roaring Twenties, which uh, brings us, the Roaring Twenties is, everything is going uh, very well post-World War I. So uh, 1919, uh, King's 18, uh, the soldiers come back. There's um, also one of the things that is often, oh, this works, we're March, March 8th. During the two world wars, there was immense progress done in the countries for uh, women's rights. And it's not because progress was given, it's because when all the guys were leaving to fight, someone had to stay home to take care of the country. And a lot of women developed social and financial independence because they, had, they, they, they finally had the opportunity to have a job, take care of their kids, uh, give allowances to their children because the father figure was not taking all the money and doing like the patriarch thing. So there are a lot of progress that is done during those years of war, not because it, the, the time had come to offer egalitarianism and progress, but mostly because the people that stayed home to take care took care and took care very well of the country. So like the war efforts was supported at home through war bonds, through the creation of ammo. A lot of women were there to, uh, in, um, for ammunition factories and stuff of the sort. And when the soldiers came back, most of the men were kind of messed up because there's shell shock and there's post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. So they weren't, for most of them, completely ready or fine. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't ready to go back to normal and most of them did not come back to normal. So the, the role of women and the role of families in general just kept on growing. And the Second World War amplified the, their, their opportunities and the possibility of, of gaining a form of independence. So the Roaring Twenties is something, is a moment of, of unknown egalitarianism up to that point where women and also there's a lot of, uh, of uh, civil rights that are happening during that time. Uh, a lot of the beginning of, it's not done, it's not like nothing is very much acquired for, uh, for the um, Afro-descendants or the Latinos, but it's starting. And all of that started a lot through culture. It started through uh, jazz, it started through uh, the uh, Cuban jazz also, like having these forms of entertainment being like in the beginning being very clandestine because there was also the idea that they couldn't drink alcohol so like during the prohibition times people would go to these underground bars in underground bars white people and black people would commingle there would be black musicians because they weren't above ground so people would start finding the best parties and the best parties had these bands but then the bands would also include other people that come from other cultures. So jazz was very influenced in their percussions by the arrival of vast um, swaths of uh, Cuban immigrants. So uh, there are parts of African rhythmics that are integrated within jazz. Then there are parts of Latin America and it becomes this very eclectic type of music that clashes immensely what, with what is being presented as music in the United States at that, at that time. Sorry, I'm once again trying to, I do American music in the other class, so we're not gonna be talking about country music and folk music. But the Warring Twenties, 
this image is like, for me, there's also like the, the emergence of uh, this type of illustration, this type of decoration that they call art deco, which I love very much so. So everything's here right now. And uh, the, the emergence, I think, of the first modern archetype for women, which is the flapper. So this type of short dress with the short hair and the, uh, and, and the, um, the feathers in their cap is an archetype called the flapper girl. The flapper girl is based on Zelda, Fitz, Zelda Fitzgerald, who Zelda Fitzgerald was uh, F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. The, the original flapper girl is, is pretty much Zelda. That's how Zelda was, I, I did not prepare this part for the class, but Zelda is a very important part of F. Scott Fitzgerald's career and life as an author. Um, since I haven't prepared it, it might be a little blurry. What I remember correctly is that she was a um, university or high school student when he met her. He was doing, he was making, he was putting on a lot of effort to impress her. She was not very impressed until he started becoming a writer. Uh, then they got married, but Zelda had, okay, in, in modern parlance, the flapper girl is the Manny Pixie dream girl. If, if this helps you out in like understanding, but it's uh, every Zoe Deschanel character ever. That's what the flapper girl was. It's smart, witty, encouraging, happy. Therefore, in, in a very pro problematic way, emotional support for crippled men. The flapper girl was very much that. And by saying that Zelda Fitzgerald is the first one, is also saying that that archetype comes from the fact that Zelda took care of her emotionally crippled husband called F. Scott Fitzgerald. As I say, I'm doing this by memory. All I remember is that uh, Fitzgerald would have um, a writing book always on his side. That's something that's very common with authors is that they, if they have ideas or they have quotes uh, of the sort, they always have like a little book that they come, okay, okay, this is a good idea. I might use it for a story later. The, the books by F. Scott Fitzgerald were something around like 60%, 60 to 70% quotes by Zelda. Zelda was the actual smart whippersnapper she had away with words. I'm not saying that F. Scott Fitzgerald did not have a way with words, but there's something very difficult in that relationship because since he was a man, he had the status that was given to him to be able to be an author. So there was an understanding in that couple that everything he used of her was taking care of the family. So there's a lot of, it becomes very controversial in trying to cut who what is F. Scott Fitzgerald's part and what is Zelda Fitzgerald's part? Because they were doing this as a family for their daughter. But he was the guy who was renowned as the author. So she would give him or she would allow him to use her ideas or her quips or her things like her, her mot d'esprit. This is what I remember uh, of memory. If this uh, contradicts anything that you know about Zelda Fitzgerald, please let me know. Or if you ever want to hear more about her, I can find resources. But F. F. Scott Fitzgerald still, although now, like th this needs to be uh, preambled, when he died, he did not know he was a, a giant of American literature. I think when he died, 700 copies of Great Gatsby were sold. He died in 1940. So he, he never really thought that he would be such a acclaimed author. He was really, there was a lot of uh, survival 
in the fact that he was writing. He was really trying to take care of his family. It's not a thing of they were in exuberance and they had plenty of money and they just wanted more. He was actually doing this for his family, but he was also doing it in a climate of uh, rage and alcoholism. So they like had a, huge bills because of uh, some consumptions of the sort. So he's not very, very far from being, like I, 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 I had presented him as being somewhat problematic, but the thing is he, I think there's something very positive about Great, Great Gatsby is, is in the idea or in the fact that the book exists, we are able to look at it and understand the times. It's not the type of book that I feel like we've spoken about in other courses where maybe this book shouldn't exist or maybe this book causes more harm than, than, than uh, good or than well. The Great Gatsby for me becomes a very important testament and it's very useful in understanding behaviors, understanding our times, their times. This goes back to what I was saying with uh, Northrop Fry. A great book should be able to speak of its time and should be able to speak to further generations. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, an author ought to write for the youth of his generation, the critics of the next, and the schoolmaster of ever afterwards. Which is, as a teacher, a very uh, amazing quote, where he says, it sh he should be read by the youth, and though the youth should understand what he is saying, so don't write for too old because the ideas are already, like it might be too late for that generation. It, the book should be written for the critics of the next generation because they are the people who will keep your book alive and the schoolmasters because we are the people that will teach these books. Obviously, Great Gatsby is a really good book to teach because it's got plenty of points, counterpoints. It got, it's got plenty of characterization. It's very, very well written. It's a super well written book and it's very, very short. It's a super short book so it's easily giveable and there's a lot, a lot, a lot to unpack in this story. Do you need me to, to resume the story? Or do you? Can you be very close to the book? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just missing. I feel that it's missing condemnation. In the story, Everyone is kind of allowed to be who they are, where it's not the case in the book. The, the movie polishes the characters, okay. where I cannot read this book without hating someone. Where in the, book, in the movie, it doesn't really happen. You're never really against someone. But in the book, everyone kind of, like, ah, oh, shit, that person sucks. Oh, oh yeah, oh that's, oh, that's dumb. Oh. And that I, I feel there's a glossing over in the, in the film, even like the Baz Luhrmann version, but even the Robert Redford version with Mia Farrow earlier on, kind of, and it, it, it participates in a certain manner. Like when I was saying that F. Scott Fitzgerald did not sell a lot of his books during his lifetime, what happened is around the 1940s, I think, there was a, a moment in, in intellectual life and in academia where people started wanting to have a canon of, of American works so by looking at you know, the American dream and uh, speaking of American exception, exceptionalism and all these things that define American culture ended up kind of forcing the hand of saying, okay, but what are the texts that speak of us? And Gatsby 
in between the 1940s and 1960s became one of those texts where two guys, um, uh, Arthur Meisner and William Troy, during the 1940s started writing of the importance of Fitzgerald and in 1950 when there was like the golden age of American literature, they really went up front saying, this is a great book about us. And then everyone went, yeah, but it's so, like we hate everyone in here. And that's when it started. There are a lot, like even um, when I, I don't even know if I spoke about this it, during Little Women, but Little Women had the original version and then it had an edited version where it became a family book. Like how Louisa May Alcott wrote the book was very raw, had certain terms that were very, um, I wouldn't say poor, but lower class. So the editors went, oh wait, we need to spiffy up that language to make sure that it becomes universal and it could be read by everyone and can become a, a aristocratic classic all the way down. Great Gatsby kind of has that feeling in every interpretation of it takes out how you're basically supposed to hate everyone in it. I feel, I feel. I agree with that. Okay. No. And so it seemed that the movie talked about this, but it's all this glorification and glamour. And reading it, it was kind of the opposite for me. Like oh, yeah. You're in this glamorous setting, but there's all this kind of nasty thing. Everything's festering underneath. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very present when you read the book. That's, it's, I wouldn't say that, I'd say that that was the, the offered interpretation. You're not supposed to like these people. You're not supposed to, although you're in a climate of, jazz and champagne and exuberance and money and people throwing these crazy you know pony ride in the middle of a castle type parties in the end everyone that's come like that all the 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 actors in it they're not they're not great for everyone basically what happens is we have a character the story is uh, told by their by his point of view uh, the character's name is nick haraway Nick Haraway is an aspiring writer. He moves into a small house on the East Egg and he's sandwiched in between two huge uh, mansions. And one of the mansions to his left is uh, on the West Egg and it's inhabited by a man called Jay Gatsby who is a figure of abundance, a very mysterious character where no one really knows how he got his money, where he comes from. And there's this rampant rumor. He is the son of a Kaiser. He, so, he saved someone from drowning. He saved a, a millionaire from drowning and he inherited the money. Like there's this legend around Gatsby and uh, Nick Carraway gets invited to one of the parties. And at the party, no one is there to be able to point at Jay Gatsby. Like no one knows who he is. But Jay Gatsby uh, ends up revealing himself to Nick Haraway and Nick Haraway kind of falls completely in love with Gatsby and does everything that he wants. So there's, there's really something about uh, romance gone, gone wrong in this story. And Jay Gatsby manipulates, uses his influence towards Nick for Nick to uh, reinvite his cousin, Daisy, to, Nick, uh, to Jay Gatsby's house because Jay Gatsby has been in love with Daisy uh, for a very long time. And uh, she ended up marrying another, I'm really not good at this, it's so horrible. I'm like, and then he did that. Basically Daisy is now married to a horrible man. 
and uh, Jay is using Nick to get Daisy back. Daisy starts uh, sleeping with Jay, while Tom, her husband, is also sleeping with Mitzi, and everyone gets very, very famous, famously drunk, everyone gets very famously emotional, and Daisy ends up hitting Mitzi with a car, and Mitzi's husband ends up shooting Gatsby in his pool. That's like the of the story, but it's just like an illustration of how no one is beyond reproach in the story. You absolutely hate everyone, and ev like there's no even tragedy in the fact that Jay dies in the end. But uh, in the to bring back of why the book is so important, there was something that Gertrude Stein said about Fitzgerald's writing is that he was more um, interested or he was more focused on writing the complete and actual present. And when I read that phrase originally, what hit me the most is how The Great Gatsby is very much in the vein of what, like, to do, like, the, the symmetry in between our, the 20s. It is the way of writing right now. Like, nothing counts more than writing what's happening right now. The actual and immediate present is also how we write our lives right now, may be through social media or may be through contemporary literature. There's a lot, like every novel that gains an ounce of respect right now can be in different settings, but it's 99.9% of the time a comment on the immediate present. So they can be using uh, Regency era, they can be doing Confederate era type fiction, but we know that there's an undertone of, of symbolism towards our time. And that's something that was also very present in Gertrude Stein's and F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1920s, is that the, the books were very, very contemporary. Like you couldn't write about two things, things that happened two years in the past. And that's because it, like, it was over, it's done. We're, we're passing on to something else. And in my, we're not, woo. <laughs> this is, yeah. Uh, I feel that that's very much might not be because, but there's a reflection of jazz in there, of the fact that jazz is, is mostly improvised music, so everything happens right here, right now. And every, like the note that came before is done. It's the note that's coming out that counts. And you, you cannot speak of jazz because jazz moves. Jazz, once you're writing down, you're already, at a, at another, you're already in another, another movement. The, the musicians have passed on to something else, and there's something in the immediacy and the present in jazz music that during those times since we're, we're under that influence of jazz and people are very much saying that you know everyone is drunk and everyone is listening to jazz all the time obviously it has an influence on yeah they're smoking drugs uh, but that doesn't really help you writing just well, yeah for jazz it does yeah you're right but this is pre-heroin jazz so this is great. but th there's something about time and time in the immediacy of it, in uh, Great Gatsby, that, in my regards, makes it a, an almost puzzling book in how well it represents later times. It's, it's, it's so aimed at doing right here, right now, that 100 years later, we're reading it, and it still works. So there, if, either he did something brilliant, or we're not advancing a lot, or time is cyclical. We'll see. Uh, so yeah, he ended up uh, really not thinking that uh, he, uh, he would be of some sort of importance. They, 
as I said, during the 1950s, in integrated uh, Fitzgerald through Great Gatsby as being one of the great American writers, especially under, uh, there's another story called Babylon Revisited that I won't be doing right now, but was also very important for his career. And then in the 1960s, people started looking at his, at his biography, started looking at his relationship with Zelda, and then went, ooh, wait, ooh, ooh, ah. And we've been in that climate ever since. I just want to give you the bigger lines of this. Yeah, the small, the, the large, the, the all right. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, there's a character named Jordan in, uh, in uh, Great Gatsby that is always badly represented. She's a Chinese-American in the novel. She's all the way Caucasian in, the, in the, the movies. And it was a source of a lot of tension because there's something in the fact that she is, uh, she's Chinese that gives her an outsider impression in the novel. Like when I was saying that no one is likable in the, in the book, I need to back up on that reflection. I think Jordan is a great character. Jordan is an amazing character, but since she's an outsider of the entire experience of richness and, and craziness, she is able to comment on behaviors and, and slights and things of, of how it is crazy. It needs, this type of crazy scenario needs someone sane to be able to go, this is, this is nuts. And Jordan is a character that, was, that, that is present, but not very well treated in the book. She doesn't have that importance. She has like this outsider description type of, a, of, a, of occupation. Why am I saying this? Because uh, The Great Gatsby is in public domain. The, uh, it's now free, you can print it, you can give it to whoever you want. And by it being public domain, you can use the characters in it. You can do whatever you want because it's not, it's of the estate, but the book itself now can be used in every which way you would want. If you want to teach it, I would encourage you to use The Chosen and the Beautiful, which is a printed fact fi fan fiction because it's allowed to call itself a fan fiction because the source material is public domain of The Great Gatsby, but told by the perspective of Jordan and it's written by a Chinese-American author. It's absolutely amazing, just for the introduction, because when the character of Daisy and Jordan are presented, there's a, can I read? I, maybe I have this. Uh, yeah, I read the whole oh, I hate this part. Uh, well, basically what happens is, in, in how he describes the, the introduction, there are a lot of words. Let me see if it's, because she uses the exact same description. This is what she's allowed to do in the book. Is that when, yeah. Oh no, he does, no okay, I can't find it. Uh, the thing in The Chosen and the Beautiful, how the language pre uh, presents itself in The Great Gatsby, if for the people that have seen the film, when we see Daisy for the first time, there's a lot of wind, there's the, the sheets, and both of the women kind of appear out of nowhere. And uh, how Nick sees them is that he feels as if they had just drifted from the air into the room, kind of giving them like a fairy-like characteristic. But what uh, Ningvo does with The Chosen of the Beautiful is she says that Jordan is an actual witch, and there's something about, uh, there's, um, there are powers the women have powers when the men aren't there that Jordan presents to Daisy. So all like the, 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 
the delicate poetic language that is put around Daisy by Fitzgerald in the original book. She actually takes it literally in her story by saying, no, she has, the, the character of Jordan has a past of being with Chinese occultists, so she has an understanding of the world that is closer to witchcraft, and she, she protects, protects Daisy during the entire story with these runes and these things. So if you really want to complete the blind spots that are present in uh, Great Gatsby, The Chosen and the Beautiful, I wanted to add this to your knowledge of teachers. Hoi, you would be doing. Okay, uh, I'll do. Do we do the break now? Are you okay? How's the, or can I do it like another author? I can do it. Can I? The symmetry. It's once again the symmetry. Oh yeah, the idea that uh, Fitzgerald is the first one, first American writer who seems to have discovered that such a thing as American class really existed. So there are uh, there are class systems in American literature, but the idea of really pointing at a distinct American class system starts off in Fitzgerald. This will be used er later on when we discuss Grapes of Wrath. Uh, okay, this is everything that I, okay. I'm just going to do Hemingway super quickly because I want two concepts to be uh, out of the way. Hemingway is also part of and it, it, it'll be brief. Hemingway admired Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald helped Hemingway get published. He wrote to um, a, an editor called Max Perkins. He said, this is to tell you about a young writer named Ernest Hemingway who lives in Paris, writes for the Transatlant Transatlantic Review, has a brilliant future. I'd look him up right away. He's a real thing. The thing with Hemingway is that he's become, as I was saying earlier on with Mark, Mark Twain, he's become like the, uh, the archetype of the crazy, adventurous American author. He's almost the most mythologized American author ever. I had insisted a lot on how Byron had a tradition behind him, Byron to the vampire, to all the romantics and, and the sexy Twilight people. With Hemingway, this is just really a quick summary of what happened in his life. Okay. Hemingway got married four times. He got divorced three times. He uh, worked as an ambulance driver for the Italian side during World War I. While he was driving this ambulance in the front of the Great World War, Hemingway was hit by an Australian shell while handing out chocolate. The blast knocked him out cold and buried him in the ground nearby. He was peppered from head to toe by shrapnel, while two Italian soldiers next to him were killed almost instantly. There is this urban legend, well, it's not an urban legend, there's a, myth, a myth around Hemingway that he could not be killed by God or by nature, and this is just one of the things. He was a uh, war correspondent in 1922 in the Greek-Turkish War, a, a correspondent also during the Spanish Civil War, 1937 to 1939, correspondent also, so a writer in, in 1941 during the Chinese and Japanese conflict, in 1944 to 1945, he was uh, participating actively in Second World War. He was writing in Madrid when Spain was uh, attacked by fascist bombers. So he left, oh, uh, and then he left to London. And in London, 
um, there was the Luftwaffe bombing. So he survived both bombings in the Second World War. He was covering the D-Day landings when he, uh, and he came onto the beach, that very uh, myth, I keep saying that. The, the, the D-Day, the, 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 the Normandy, but very important or historically important for Canadians moments. He was with the seventh wave. Uh, he uh, ran through the Battle of the Bulge, all while suffering from pneumonia. He uh, hunted Nazis off of uh, Cuba because there was a, uh, there was a, a passageway for Nazis that were trying to flee uh, Europe to go um, in South America, in Brazil. So he fought them off in Cuba. Uh, he, while he was doing that during Second World War, he was also a trainer for the French resistance. <laughs> so this is only what he did during the war. He was also a uh, huge hunter and a huge fisher. He enjoyed safaris. He, was, um, he, he, was, uh, he got sick by anthrax. He hunted in Africa while being sick by malaria. He had pneumonia, I said, he had dysentery. He had skin cancer. Many cases of hepatitis, anemia, diabetes, diabetes, high blood pressure because he was a raging alcoholic. And uh, I don't know which one, but there's obviously the case to be done for mental illness. Uh, he went to Africa to, uh, to, to hunt lions, but he was suffering from malaria at the time. So instead of hunting lions, he organized boxing match, matches with uh, the locals. And there are plenty of pictures of Hemingway shirtless just boxing African people for fun. <laughs> like mutual fun, not just him going. <laughs> Nobody in case. He did not enjoy the United States at a certain point, so he left for France. He met Gertrude Stein in Paris. Then he did not enjoy Paris too much, so he went to Spain. In Spain, he started writing. Well, in Paris and Spain, he wrote The Sun Also Rises, which would have been the book I wanted to speak about. But honestly, once the travel ban is lifted, if it is, I'm not sure exactly, you need to read The Sun Also Rises. This is the type of book that I like first year university students to read because it's all about dropping everything and going to Europe. I have to be completely translucent in this. I did that during my BA. I dropped out of my BA in literature <laughs> twice to go to Europe. I only read Sun Also Rises last year and I went, oh, this would have been, whoa. Reading this when I was younger would have brought me to so many different adventures. In The Sun Also Rises, there's a, a character, and I, I wanted to speak of the, is it, yeah, Sun Also Rises, great book, called The Second Self, which is not really like a, uh, what we call, right now we would call um, autofiction. It's not biography hidden under fiction. The second self is really like the extrapolation of one as a character. And The Sun Also Rises really has that in the character of Jake Barnes. Jake Barnes is very much Hemingway and him writing about what he did in Europe uh, during those times with friends. So a lot of the characters are based on real people. And the, the second self becomes like a, a two-way street in fiction because People read books like The Sun Also Rises about all the adventures that Hemingway had in Europe, but they're reading the adventures of Jake, and they go, oh yeah, but he, you know, he loves bullfighting. We know that Ernest Hemingway loves bullfighting, and Jake also does. So, so that's why I say there's a two-way street, because there's a type of contamination 
where the, the guy becomes bigger than nature because he writes about bigger than nature characters, but him also through newspaper clippings because we have pictures of actual corridas in Spain where Ernest Hemingway is like this in front of a bull. And he was actually, I think he was stabbed through his leg uh, by pushing another author out of the way. Hemingway is just, and he wrote like these very inspiring descriptions of just fleeing your responsibilities and going, getting drunk and meeting random people in Europe. And it's super, super inspiring. But uh, when he went on vacation in Africa, Hemingway were, and his company were almost killed in a plane crash. But uh, while they were going to Uganda to get medical care, the plane exploded on takeoff. So he, the plane crashed. He went into a Jeep to another plane to go to Uganda. The plane exploded. <laughs> the concussion caused him to leak cerebral fluid and he suffered from two cracked discs, a kidney and liver rupture, dislocated shoulder, shoulder and broken skull. And he still went on his planned fishing trip oh where a brush fire burned his leg, front torso, lips, left hand and right floor, forearm. The world's interesting man meme is Ernest Hemingway, without a doubt. <laughs> After that trip, he went back to the United States to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, and then in 1961, he shot himself in the mouth with a shotgun. So that's why everyone says no one could kill Ernest Hemingway. Only, is it 61? Yeah? Oh, no, I was going to say if you know uh, the reference from Rick and Morty about Ernest Hemingway. No. I okay. <laughs> I should. But Hemingway is just like, who's him? I, I think I've only seen like two or three seasons. Chuck Norris is like a really huge Trump supporter, huh? I had a huge, uh, yeah, sorry, it, it just gets me in my, when he came to Montreal, like everyone's like, oh, it's great, I'm going to get a picture for him, it's got 80 bucks and stuff, and I was just like, you need, that's irresponsible because all that money is going into super PACs to, to, to get Trump real, I, it was, it's, Chuck Norris is super conservative, uh, almost disgustingly so. I am up to the, I, I can defend Fitzgerald, but I'm really, I have turmoils within for Chuck Norris. No, Ernest Hemingway was the real deal. He was actually living the adventures. He was, and he was uh, taking care of, of everything. Like it's just the idea of this massively implausible life. And he met everyone. He had supper with Castro after the uprising. It's just like he did everything. And he wrote these books. He fell in love with a nurse in Spain in a hospital. He wrote Farewell to Arms about it, which is one of the most romantic books about wartime romance that you can have. It's just, ugh, that character is exuberant. He was a huge bully. Like the, the, the title of the class is Fitzgerald versus Hemingway because Fitzgerald was kind of always shrimpish and small and difficult. He didn't trust himself. He had, you know, he would assert dominance on people like his wife and child. Hemingway was just this Ap Apollonian character who would, you know, fight bare-chested anything that he would meet. And although Fitzgerald recognized his literary talent, it kind of broke their relationship because there are two completely distinct personalities. It's pretty obvious. But Hemingway lived for a lot longer than, uh, than Fitzgerald did. He was always like the right guy. He took care of people and not entirely Superman because he was a raging drunk, but he still had these really inspiring things uh, in his life up to the point where 
in my regards, if someone like Virginia Woolf def um, uh, defends him, you're up to a point where you know that there is a life that is lived here, where she said he is candid, he is highly skilled, he plants words precisely when, where he wishes, he has moments of bare and nervous beauty, he is modern in a manner but not in vision, he is self-consciously vir uh, virile, his talents has contracted rather than expanded. I'm, I wasn't too sure about the, uh, uh, like not the, the veracity of this quote, but why would someone so different as Virginia Woolf was of Hemingway, why would she pick up on these slight emotions or these slight characteristics around the character? I started reading them a couple of months ago and I didn't read them yet. If you're ever interested in reading his letters, there is a batch of letters about him losing his cat <laughs> that are not funny. He is devastated. It's so beautiful. And that's the thing is that having this bigger than life, plane crash surviving, malaria drunkard, and him breaking down for 11 letters for his cat is just, <laughs> there are problems, but once in a while you can, you, you should really survive them. He's great, he's absolutely great. Hemingway had this idea in his writing, if you're ever interested in really reading, go for his short stories or go for Sun Also Rises because it's so inspiring. And now that you can take a semester off, go to Paris, please go to Paris. Uh, he, um, he had a, I think he did this, this one I'm not too sure about. The first one I know is the iceberg theory of writing is that he, uh, Hemingway would write that only 20% of his characters would show he would write 80% of suggestions in beneath. And he would call that the iceberg theory of writing is that you shouldn't show too much. All the characters should have something under them, something, uh, something hidden from sight. And that is super present in, when you know that that's how he wrote, it's very much clear. The other one, yes. you know this about the character. Like he, he will know things about the character that he will not write. But by knowing them when he is writing them, they appear though invisible. Implicitly. Kinda. Implicitly would even be too much in presenting them. It's just having a, and it's, it, it, it's very, it, it works very well with the example that I just said. If I had described Hemingway, only in his biography, I'm certain that you would all have had this mental image, but then you add the cat story. It's like he had the cat story for all the characters. Everyone had something there where you're like, he's crazy. He would snake, you know, he would get snake bites and then he would fight Cubans and, and then it's just, I lost my cat. And I think his cat had uh, one of, yeah, his, the cat that died had six uh, toes. So he kept like describing that six toe as making that cat it's just that, like, you know, that little detail. You think it's so beautiful. He's great. He's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think he also, but this, I'm not too sure. I'm, I'm riffing on it. I think he would um, automatically delete the first 100 pages. Fif he had 54 cats total. <laughs> I like you. Your eyes are great on that one just because the last one, you're like, he, he owned a total of 54 cats in his life. 54. No, I don't think, not simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> there, 
yeah, I don't know, 54 simultaneous. Well, it, has, it has to be more than one, okay. one cat at a time. Yeah, yeah, a cat a year for that. It work. He was born in. He seems like the kind of guy who would juggle eight to ten, or eight to twelve <laughs> at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now you're all going to see him with like cats and huge, like huge. Look at this guy. Look at him. Uh, yeah, the thing that I was, I, I'm, I'm going to leave you on this one. Uh, boom. I think Hemingway did this, where he would. He would delete the first 100 pages. Well, delete is a modern term. He would uh, scrap the first 100 pages of all his novels because that was, he, you didn't need to know this. So someone would be, he, an ordinary writer would write a 300 page, page novel but only start this story at the 100 page mark. He would get rid of everything beforehand to make sure that you enter in the action and maybe some of these unknown or invisible or occulted details were not present or suggested. I don't know what the term they used. Okay, uh, this was me just going, ah, Ernest Hemingway. But as polar opposites, they're very interesting as how Fitzgerald presented post-war United States as being a place of, of amusement and joy, but also of desolation and a lot of sadness and a lot of addiction. Hemingway went to Europe and just kept on. He kept following and looking for adventures and living and living and living until, like I, I have no idea, I know the cause of death, but I don't know what spurred that. But he went like all in until the very, until his very end, which is the polar opposite of what Fitzgerald had done. So you really have two ways of seeing uh, the, 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 the <laughs> what? Okay, I can't, th that time, that, pi that, that, that decade, basically. Let's go for a break because I'm super tired. I can't even remember my words anymore. Any questions? Yeah, sorry. Uh, okay, uh, in this, the break could be very long <laughs> because I want you to have a conversation about Dorothy Parker. You did, yeah, but did everyone do? The, the story that was uh, for Big Blonde, the story that was on the Moodle. Well, if you haven't read it, maybe pair up with people or we can, we'll do like a 15 minute break followed by a 15 minute conversation where you can discuss Big Blonde so that we can all talk about it and then I'll finish up with Steinbeck and a little bit of Arthur Miller. Cool, great. Thing. Uh, okay, I, we have like 10 minutes to go. So um, I had never read Grapes of Wrath. I read Grapes of Wrath last week. I'm pretty amazed by that book. One of the things, Grapes of Wrath is a, uh, it's really the book of the entire summation of this. It's this, the book is this. What does this mean in literature? And what does this mean for the American culture in general? So uh, Steinbeck wrote this in 1939. So we were still in the storms. What really amazed me is how Steinbeck is a hero of American literature. Everyone knows this. He is one of the greatest writers. He's always quoted. 
But there's something that, in my research, I was very amazed in finding out. The entire story is, works in three arts, basically. It's the Jode family that has to leave the Midwest because of the Dust Bowl. So the first part is them having to wrap up, basically putting everything they have in a car. A lot of um, people, like everyone was fleeing at the same time, so it's a massive exodus. But people are uh, selling furniture for gas while they're driving, so they have like these huge cars full of everything that they've ever owned, these trucks, these pickup trucks. But you would stop at a gas station and you would offer like a table for a gallon of gas. And then you have these gas station attendees that, are, that aren't receiving money. They're just receiving goods constantly saying, okay, we can't take this anymore. We need, and it's just a race. Like the first part is extremely symbolic in a race to poverty, basically. It's them fleeing and the act of fleeing is them getting rid of material possessions and losing what made their home a home to be able to exchange it for fuel, to be able to run away from the dust storm. So it, it's, very, it's a really bleak story because during that entire exodus, what everyone is, um, the rumor that's spreading is that there's always jobs, there are always uh, jobs in California. So everyone's leaving the Midwest in their cars, entire families, to go to California to get these little, these jobs, these picking jobs most of the time. So you have in the first part, a, an entire family, mother, father, brother, no. and in this, uh, as a central character, you have a character called Tom Jode. So if anyone listens to blues music or if anyone listens to a lot of Bruce Springsteen, Tom Jode is omnipresent in Bruce, Springste Bruce Springsteen's music as a character, as someone who survives the Dust Bowl and someone who will lose his home and then lose his family, lose his family in this point. And like, it's just a story of loss. So when they get, the, the first part is them leaving, the second part is them on the road, and the third part is them getting to California. How this also, like, I was amazed in reading this book of how I feel like I'm reading something that was written 10 years ago. It's very poignant. There's also something very smart about how he did it because Steinbeck was in between movements. So he went back to a type of romanticism where he spoke a lot about nature, how the story is developed. There are a lot of chapters, but once in a while you'll get a chapter that is purely environmental. So there's like chapter seven is only about a turtle and it's the turtle walking with grains of oat on his, uh, on his shell. And as, as he's walking through the, the, the barren wasteland, basically he's dropping oats. So he is sowing by fleeing the dust bowl. He's just dropping little grains that will eventually maybe uh, uh, grow food. But it's just like these little snapshots, like these documentary inserts that show us how nature functions and in between you have how society functions. What really amazed me, I'm, I'm jumping from one side to the other. I was surprised at how, when researching the book, Steinbeck never trusted the book or trusted it in a really odd way. In the introduction, he speaks of, uh, of a lot of doubt and it's, it, I feel like not enough of classic literature exposes the doubts of the authors towards the, the books that they wrote. So right now we know that Grapes of Wrath is a 
massively popular and it's, it's well done and everyone has acclaimed it. It sold 40,000 copies in the first year. But when Steinbeck was writing it, he didn't feel it. And he would say stuff like, if I could do this book properly, it would be one of the really fine books and truly American book. I'm assailed by my own ignorance and inability. I have to work from a background of these, of, of not trusting yourself. And uh, of honestly looking at your own ignorance when writing something. If I can keep an honest, if I could keep an honesty, honest, I, I'm really sorry for that. If I can do that, it will be my lack of genius, for no one else knows my lack of ability in the way that I do. I'm pushing against, he really didn't feel that he could write this book up to the point where this is a longer, so it might be full of, uh, of errors in it. But he wrote a letter to his editor by saying, okay, I could give, I can hand in the book now because you want it, but it'll be a book full of bells and whistles and it's not going to be the book that I feel it could be because I have to write something that is up to the task of representing the society as it is being destroyed on one side and the other. And it's amazing to understand that he, even he felt that he was not talented enough to write this, but he was, he needed more time. Wait, I can do this, I'm sure. But a, a, a huge portion, like boy, I, I'm realizing while I'm saying this, that I'm psychoanalyzing myself. <laughs> and it's, it's really strange, sorry. It's him embarking on something and realizing that it's bigger than himself and putting all the efforts to be able to honor the subject. And when he does honor the subject, he writes amazing passages, like the one I just want to read right now, which is from page 439, the end of chapter 25. When he says, and the smell of rot fills the country. Burn coffee for fuel in the ships. Burn corn to keep warm. It makes a hot fire. Dump, dump potatoes in the rivers and place guards along the banks to keep the hungry people from fishing them out. Slaughter the pigs and bury them and let the putrescence drip down into the earth. There is a crime here that goes beyond denunciation. There is a sorrow here that weeping cannot symbolize. There is a failure here that topples all of our successes. The fertile earth, the straight tree rows, the sturdy trunks and the ripe fruit and children dying of Pelegra must die because, of profit, because a profit cannot be taken from an orange and coroners must fill in the certificate died of malnutrition because the food must rot, must be forced to rot. The people come with nets to fish for potatoes in the river and the guards hold them back. They come in rattling cars to get dumped oranges. Put the, uh, put the kerosene is sprayed and they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listen, by the screaming pig, listen to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime. Watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there is a failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the sounds of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. And in the following years, we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, refugees and immigrants and this situation. I thought the book was amazing in explaining how the plight of the immigrant can be something destructive to humanism and humanity. But what's amazing about Grapes of Wrath is that, is that it, it does not include an othering. Since it's speaking of the American people on American soil, it's never taking a stance of 
that's them, we need to protect ours. It is all ours in the book. And it's something very much about community breaking down and having to be built back up because he loses his family, Tom Joe loses his family all the way, and then he has to rebuild around that community to be able to, to survive and to survive in, in a communal sense. I, although I have spoken a lot during the class of how the 2020s are a reflection of our 2020s, the scariest book that I can suggest is The Grape of Wrath. It's really scary, but it's amazingly well-written and it speaks of these things. I, I think it's a powerful, it's, as I was saying, a book needs to be as powerful when it was written as when it is being read. I feel like this book is more powerful now than it was in the 1930s. So that's pretty much it. Oh yeah, I wanted to speak of Arthur Miller, but no time, who was Marilyn Monroe's husband. He wrote Death of a Salesman, which is an extrapolation of this, but in, in uh, economic and in, in urban, settings. If you ever get to read this, read it. If you don't get to read it, we're going to be speaking about it in Canadian and American culture, for sure. So thank you very much. Yes, wait, sorry. <laughs>